0: I'm James Brian Smith. Welcome to the Things Above podcast. You're listening to episode 35. If you've been listening to this podcast before, you know that from time to time, we have a guest and we call those episodes Things Above Conversations. Today is one of those, and my guest today is Chris Hewart's. There's so many fascinating things about Chris. He's a, a world traveler. He's worked in social justice. He's done amazing things. But as of late, Chris has become known as a real expert on the Enneagram. You may not know what the Enneagram is, but if you listen to this episode, you'll learn about what it is, and I hope you'll find it intriguing and interesting and maybe something you want to explore in your own spiritual formation. So without any further ado... Chris Hewarts. Chris Hewarts, welcome to the Things Above podcast. So glad that you are here.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Great to, great to be with you.
0: It's awesome. And your, your book, The Sacred Enneagram, Finding Your Unique Path to Spiritual Growth, is now my favorite book on the Enneagram. Oh. I've read a bunch. Hmm. <laughs> and I, I, it's so good in so many ways. And I think because it's more than a book on the Enneagram. It's not just find your type and, and learn why you do what you do. But it's a, it's a book about growth and formation and God and our faith. And so I think um, I, just, I just love it. But um, we'll talk a little about the Enneagram. I want you to explain it to listeners, especially since a lot of ours don't know maybe what the Enneagram is, this crazy thing. But um, let's go ahead and just talk. The first chapter of the book has so much in it. It's so fantastic. So many thoughts from above, as we like to say. But you open the book with a story that I really loved about your spiritual director, Father
1: Larry Gillick. Can you share that story with our listeners? I yeah. think it's very instructive. Yeah. So I I've been real fortunate. Actually, um, my first spiritual director I, I met with with uh, probably for three or four years before he passed away. Um, he had been a incredibly successful lawyer. Um, was in a terrible accident and ended up as quadriplegic in a, in a wheelchair and resisted his disability for for years until he finally consented and and then turned inward and allowed his chair to become, in a sense, sort of a, a, a prayer cell or a monastery. And um, and so when him and I would meet, it was often sharing a lot of silence, which was difficult and, and painful for me. But when he passed away, um, I began meeting with his spiritual director, Father Larry Gillick, a Jesuit at Creighton. And, um, man, I've been meeting with Father Gillick maybe for 15 years. Anyway, there, there had been a period of time where I hadn't been with him um, for, for a few months and I was starting to feel a little guilty about that. I, I saw that he was doing a retreat at this Benedictine monastery outside of Omaha. So I sort of signed up thinking like, maybe this will just sort of be the booster shot, the catch up. And, um, and his secretary called and goes, hey, Father Gilk noticed you're on the list. Could you drive him out? And I was like, even better. Like now I'll for sure get my catch my up. But on that retreat, there's a lot of things that that he guided us through that that really changed my life. And one of them was a silly little story. He had been visiting a Catholic elementary school in Omaha after his, his presentation, a little girl probably in grade three or four came up to him and was talking to him about the things she shared. And in mid-conversation, she realized he couldn't see. And she blurted that out in his face. She goes, you're blind. And- and that's true, Father Gilcloss's sight when he was also a little child, probably mm. just about her, her same age, he faces her and he goes, honey, that's not a su- surprise to me. <laughs> right. And she goes from pure astonishment, like shocked that she hadn't noticed all morning, he was blind, to deep sadness. And then she says, you don't know what you look like. And as he tells the story, I mean, it really caught him off guard, like really a profound thing for a, a child to sort of observe. Yeah. And so before he could respond to that, she says, you're beautiful. And, um man, I just feel like the, the echoes of that story, that's all of our story, right? There, there's a kind of spiritual blindness that we suffer. Um, we don't know what we look like. And I think the Enneagram sort of shows us that in nine different ways. It shows us the way that we suffer and live out of a fear. And, and sometimes we need the so-called unlikely other to, to remind us what's good and true and beautiful about us. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think that's, that's really sort of the waves of grace, actually.
0: Yeah, it's, well, on page 16, you write, each and every one of us is beautiful. Each and every one of us is beloved by God. I just, I love that. But then you go on to say, from this starting point, we can begin an honest interrogation of the depths of our identity, of who we really are. When we accept our inherent beauty, we find the courage to examine what makes us beautiful, to honestly encounter both the good and the bad, the shadow and the light. So excellent writing. well mm-hmm. done. <laughs> but I have a question to follow up that that statement. Why is it that we have to start our quest for identity from our own beauty and belovedness? I mean, and why is it that we commonly don't? And what's at stake if we don't start from beauty and belovedness? Sure.
1: So in in first in, in John 4, there's there's all these great little sort of references and, 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 and examinations of of how in the presence of love fear can't exist. And um, my sense is religion has has failed us in that it's used fear as sort of the motivator for us to sort of f- attempt to find a way to God or, or the divine or divine love. And my sense is if, if, if that's the starting point, if it's not simply an invitation to love, like we've 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 already lost something in that, right? Love um, for its own sake gives. And if there's no threat uh, of hell or no promise of heaven, would we still say yes to, to God? Well, I, I would hope so because we have to find that that God is so irresistible and, and so loving that it's the only the only viable option to say yes to. My sense is, we we see that in ourselves because we bear within us this divine imprint, and this divine imprint is also an invitation to to self love. That's what all the sacred texts and all the world religions tell us that we can only love the the, the one closest to us as 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 far as we've learned to love ourselves, and that's. That's that's very simple, and and I think it's very sensible. But I think even in our religious socialization, we we don't know how to love ourselves. So I, I think what we learn when we look into a teaching or a tradition like the enneagram, is that if we we don't actually hold ourselves with with real honest gentle compassion and love, then then everything else is is is, is every other starting point is is flawed, is malformed. It, 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 we're we're behind the the, the the starting line, and we're never actually going to to compete towards the finish line. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but the,
0: that's what's so hard is so few of us actually do that. I mean, we, most of us are trying to find our value and worth in something external, something outside. And that's where you kind of connect with the Enneagram, that we're on a yeah. search for something, right? Significance yeah. for God, for connection. And um, it's just it's counter, unfortunately, to mm. what we often do. I love the section in the in the first chapter called "Identity and Dignity," and you actually came at that in a way I'd never heard before, and I was really I loved it so much. Um, in that section, you state that the paramount question for all humanity is "Who am I?" and you state that identity answers the question of who I am, but dignity answers the question "What am I worth?" and you talk about the importance of that relationship between
1: identity and dignity. I'd never really thought about that before. Talk some about that. Yeah, so I came across this idea probably t- not 30 years ago, but at least 20, 25 years ago, and some of the things that Vinay Samuel and Chris Sugden were writing, um, and in particular, in this great little sort of lost, obscure book called Seeking the Asian Face of Jesus. And, you know, the work I had done for, for 20 years was international humanitarian work, it was anti trafficking work. I was living in South Asia working with little kids um, affected by the global AIDS pandemic. So, so children who are orphaned because of AIDS or, or born HIV positive. And, um, and you know, when you're, you're involved in that kind of work, um, for a lot of us, the tendency was to over-identify who we thought we were with our vocational fidelity, what we were doing out in the world. And and that's a great substitute if you're doing things that you think are noble or, or good. But, but that, I think, even makes it harder to sort of return to what compels us to say yes to, to these kind of vo- vocations of hope. And, and so for me I, I did get lost I did get lost in, in, in the work I was doing um I, I allowed some of the fragments to lay claim to the whole of who I thought I was and and I needed a I, I needed the, the 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 mercy the severe mercy of a, of a recalibrating sense of self and and what I had said yes to and in the community I was a part of it. and so man when I came across these words the identity is who we are dignity is what we perceive our, our worth is it just changed everything because here's the problem we we actually put our 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 identity first and and then we think our identity backfills dignity we think who i am makes me more mm. valuable makes me more lovable makes me more worthy of of being loved when in fact if an if we do bear within us the imprint of the divine that's the dignity that's always been there that's always been ascribed that that we don't need to do anything more from it and, and it's from that that identities derived and, and and that's gentle also that's compassionate also that's Saying yes to yourself. Yeah, I'm totally stealing this,
0: Chris. That, <laughs> it's, you'll see. I'll I'll credit you though. I promise. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I've been working a lot on that myself. On, on, um, you know, in fact, the next book I've been working on is called "The Good and Beautiful You," mm. which would be the fourth book in the. And I'm trying to, you know, how do we talk about in not in a narcissistic way, but the sacred value of who we are? On an earlier podcast, I quoted my favorite Christmas. Song uh, "O Holy Night" and that great line, and he appeared, and the soul felt its worth. Mm. I love that, and so when I think of the incarnation, I think Jesus. He he appeared, and what does that do? It the soul felt its worth. Like mm. there's that dignity, and I love what you're doing there with with uh, you know made in the divine image. Um, let's see. Oh well, I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and jump down. You quote in this chapter the the late great Henry Nowen mm. and who was significant in my life. Um, shameless name drop there for me. Mm-hmm. But um, now and taught that there were three human lies about identity that ultimately destroy us. Share what those three lies
1: are and why they're so harmful and how do we move away? Yeah. So I actually came across those 25 years ago. I don't know if you remember this. Um, Henry Nowen visited the Crystal Cathedral. Yes. And uh, a buddy of mine from, from Long Beach had VHS taped those off of his his old classic little black and white <laughs> TV. But, uh, man, when I first heard Nolan r- sort of riff on those, that also was a game changer. I mean, that was a turning point in my life. And and Nolan said that, you know, these three classic lies that we sort of bounce between, I am what I have, I am what I do, and I am what other people say about me, really sort of— um, Create the rails for, for how personality, let's say, is formed, how spiritual tra- trajectories are, are, are set in motion or how we come to, to view those fragments or, or aspects of self. Um, I'm sure like had he had more time, I'm sure had he he really developed the thoughts, he, he would have seen the natural connections. But I do see those naturally lining up with, with some of the things that, that we see Um or that we can learn in the enneagram, and then one of our our founding board members and, and Felina's priest over the, the past fifteen years, who who just passed away last fall, Father Thomas Thomas Keating, also oh, sort wow. of brings out these um programs for happiness that are sort of just biologically hardwired to our psycho spiritual development and infancy, and, and those are power and control, affection, esteem, and security and survival, and I actually see those lining up with with Nowen's lies. And one of the punchlines in in my book, The Sacred Enneagram, is I then take Henry Noun's Lies and Thomas Keating's Programs for Happiness, and I align them with the three temptations of of of, of Jesus in the wilderness. Um, and consequently, actually, there, there's an echo of these same very temptations when Paul is meditating under the lotus tree, and becoming the Buddha. Mm-hmm. I, I think what that sort of points to is th- these are the things that we have to learn to contend with, because mm-hmm. I think it's, in a sense, probably hardwired to our... Our spiritual DNA. Um, okay, we're getting deep now. Let's let's go over those
0: again. The, the three lies are: I am what I have. I because you said these fast. You're, you're brilliant. And you went on a. It was awesome. I am what I have. I am what I do. I am what others people say about me. Hmm. So those are the three the three lies.
1: And you write in the book that one one of those three was particularly difficult for you. Yeah. So I'm so so I would say this. I I am what I I do like I was saying earlier, especially as it aligns with, you know, the first 20 years of of, of my, my humanitarian, my international work um, became sort of the trap that I fell on. It was like, I, I really thought like I was this activist. I, I really thought like I was this, this, this person who was helping folks out of the sex trade, let's say, or, you know, vulnerable children. But clearly what I was doing in, 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 in many instances, I, I hope there was some at least good-hearted, true benevolence Absolutely. in my work. Yeah. But I, I think in a lot of it I was was projecting outside of myself what I wasn't actually finding the courage to look inside of myself. And you know, I'll, I'll say this like someone who identifies as, as dominant in Enneagram type 8, um, there's there's something very difficult for us, which is is, is being it's, it, it's about learning to practice vulnerability, right? My, my spiritual director once reminded me that the word vulnerable, English, comes from the Latin word for wound, and so to be vulnerable is to be woundable. Well, I'd rather use transparency as sort of a side hustle to make you think I'm being vulnerable, but but I'm not. I'm I'm, I'm still sort of keeping you at a distance. To really let somebody in really opens opens us up. Let's say, well, for AIDS, there's there's this conflicted relationship with vulnerability because we have this unhealthy relationship with control. Mm. For AIDS. There's part of our childhood that may have felt accelerated. And, and so when we're around children, it, it's actually an invitation to sort of let our inner child come forward. And and so, yes, for probably 20 years of my life, I was working outside of myself, but I wasn't trying to work on inside myself. Mm-hmm. And, and I really did think I became what I was doing. And, and that's who I was. And, and of course, that wasn't me. And and of course, that, that led to a lot of pain and mm-hmm. and, and, and sort of, um, sort of self-abandonment. Mm. So you got
0: you've got the the three lies and then you've got Keating's the the power and control and all
1: what did you call those? Those were the So Father Thomas called those programs for happiness. And okay. in fact he said that every child needs um, an adequate amount of power and control affection and a seam and security and survival to to, 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 to adjust, to develop. Mm-hmm. It's just that when we attach to one of those and it becomes an addictive patterning, um, that's where we we get stuck. Mm. It sounds similar to attachments.
0: Like I've heard the attachments of to be seen, to be safe, to be soothed, I think. Or the, mm-hmm. And I see there's – I mean there's kind of a connection there that so early on were developed. All right. Let's go ahead and jump to uh, the Enneagram a little bit. Um, in, in a very basic sense, like it, you're talking to somebody who has no idea. <laughs> what is this
1: weird Enneagram? What is – how would you – Explain it yeah. to, to a fifth grader. Or yeah. <laughs> so no, actually it's so funny. When I was working on this manuscript, there's this little eight-year-old girl who came into my office and was like, What are you working on? And I was like, Oh man. I Googled the Enneagram for children and I actually found a a My Little Pony Enneagram with like <laughs> nine My Little Ponies around the circle. Okay. And I asked her um to describe the characteristics of those nine ponies. And I wish I would have recorded it because that was like the best four minutes ever of somebody not knowing what they were talking about. Describe the personality styles here. Um, but to um, introduce the Enneagram, uh, it's it, it's complicated because, first off, we, we may be working with a, a teaching that has six or seven thousand years of ancient history but the most sort of contemporary overlay is only about 40 or 45 years. And the contemporary overlay is, is specifically referred to as the Enneagram of Personality, which describes nine sort of ways of being, nine archetypes for human character structure, nine um, ways that, that humanity presents sort of personality, but my sense is, 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 is it's a little bit more nuanced than that. My sense is that we are all contending with the pain of our loss of contact with essence. I believe that we are all purpose that, 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 that we are all destined to bring forward a, a gift of, of, of essence. Maybe you, you can call that aspects of your true self. The problem is is somewhere in our early holding environments, there's a so-called childhood wound that disconnects us from this essence, disconnects us from this purpose or this gift. And so then we live out of that, the pain of that so-called wound. And in most cases, it's not real trauma and it's not real wound. It's simply our inability to receive love perfectly because our caregivers couldn't love us perfectly. Well, anyway, mm-hmm. when we live out of the pain of that, that so-called wound, what, what happens is we develop a skill set. And I think our skill set is our personality. It becomes a, a system of, of, of coping addictions that we wrap up around this one so that we don't have to tell ourselves the truth about who we really are. Mm-hmm. And what we would rather do is, is trick out and build out scaffolding around the projection of our own ego mythology and then live into that illusion. So what mm-hmm. the Enneagram basically says is, no, you're you're not your personality. You're not one of these nine types of people. You're actually a gift. And, and if you could remember what that gift is and if you could realign with that gift, you could also participate in the healing of the world. You could also, Sort of stand in line and all these midwives that are yearning to birth the new we that i think everybody is so desperate for
0: wow you said a lot there brother that is really <laughs> good okay so not to caricature and and i'd encourage anybody who's listening that wants to learn there are there are online tests you can take and i think you suggest just reading about the types and seeing where you gravitate and that sort of thing
1: um but just in a, in a nutshell in a sentence or two yeah. can we go through the nine sure so um, if if you run around the circle, the nine the nine points on the circumference, um, and, and if we would just start at, at, at type one, this is sometimes called the reformer or the perfectionist, the need to be perfect. This is the person whose who's basic fear is that they are somehow inherently corrupt, and, and so they're principled as a way of trying to, to, to earn the love that, that they so desperately want. Incredibly responsible people um, set really high standards, but but really beat themselves up because it's as if they could never live into the unrealistic expectation of the perfection that they set out there for, for, for the world. And, 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 and first and foremost for themselves. Type two is sometimes called the helper, the giver, this is the need to be needed. And, and this is just the, the nurturing embrace of, of the Enneagram. This is really the, the person whose strength is, is the open heartedness of, of what they, they, they offer and how they love us. Um, the fear is, 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 is rooted in, the concern that they're not love for who they are but what they give. And, and so that that drives them. And and of course the fear is also rooted in this 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 possibility that they would be disconnected from the source of love. But but we almost learn everything we know about love and our relationships from from folks who are too and who are grounded, centered and, and rooted in that. Three is is sometimes called the achiever or the performer. and, and this bums me out super hard because you sometimes hear that the three has the need to succeed, and it's not that the three is the most ambitious or successful of all the types. It's simply that maybe it's the most obvious in type three that in nine different ways we are suffering this loss of love. And so for threes who are, who are really disconnected from their own heart, when they're children, they, they made this mistake in sort of – attaching to uh, attention, recognition, affirmation, and using that as sort of a substitute for love. And, and since it was sort of low-hanging fruit and easy for them to, to, to sort of grasp onto, they they began to sort of feed that and stuff the emptiness of their heart with this recognition as that substitute for love. And, and so in their adult lives, um, their drive is simply the, the the inner child wanting to to sort of be held by Nurturing love and affirm that they don't have to earn it that they don't have to realize the unfulfilled dream of a parent um, to, to earn the value and 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 that's the thing about three is they, they ascribe value They add value to every company organization community that are part of to, to their partners and, and people in their lives But again, what we're always doing is projecting outside of ourselves what we're not wanting to contend inside ourselves and when threes add and ascribe value to their environments, what they're simply trying to to do is earn that value back. Because if they think that they have more value than they think, they they may be more worthy of, of the love that they desire. And so that's their basic fears is of not having intrinsic value. And And it's just such a – it's such a – it's a heartbreak for me to actually look at type through the basic fears because we know the fears are lies. And, and it really has to elicit tremendous yeah, compassion.
0: Yeah, I'm glad that you're – so compassionate about that because i'm a three. <laughs> and oh, i just man. I, I appreciate your compassion because when i learned i was a three um it didn't like make me go oh wow mm. i i uh i don't like being a three yeah <laughs> for for exactly the same reasons that you've described mm. we could come back to that but thank you for being compassionate yeah. about it yeah because wr- some people look at threes and go oh they're just they're fake they're just achieving they're just accomplishing they're trying to win all the time, but and you have no idea that at,
1: at the root it's exactly yeah. what you just described. It's a bummer. I. It's so funny. I. I really do get arrested at type three when we introduce types, just because I. You're right. Like I think threes get dragged a little bit for the wrong things. Like oh, they're so image conscious. Well, it's not that they're image conscious. It's that every aspect of self has to be a a piece of the puzzle towards the sort of. Learning to see who they are, and hopefully seeing in that value, um, that competitive caricature of the threes. I mean, it's so unhelpful and it's unfortunate, and, mm-hmm. and it doesn't serve any of us. And if you're honest, threes are actually more self-competitive than they are sort right. of with people in their lives. And and again, that's just that inner attempt to sort of return to that 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 child within that just wants to be held i mean this is i, I don't want to go hard on threes yeah. but that wound, well i'm digging it, so <laughs> that that wound with the three is is really around the emptiness of the heart and it's attaching to a heart of a nurturing caregiver letting that heart do for the three what the three is afraid they can't do for themselves and and you see we we do this we all do this in nine different ways um but when the three does attach and and, and aligns with their heart i mean look at your 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 own work look at your own life like you see these things come forward in such profound and beautiful ways, and you see this is this is why understanding these things are important about ourselves. Because when we do and we realign with that that purpose, when we remember that essence, man, three's become really a source of authenticity and truth in the world, and that truth is what's going to heal the world because that's the truth that's going to dispel the lies of of, of our fears, mm-hmm. and we all have them.
0: No, oh, that's beautiful. All right. Well, again, the book is the Sacred Enneagram: of Finding Your Unique Path uh, Path to Spiritual Growth. So here we go. Well, we've got three. We're we're a third of the way. How About, uh, what? about number four. Okay.
1: So four is sometimes called the um, they call it the the romantic or the individualist. I sometimes call the four the diva. Um, this is the the need to be unique, and 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 this again is is a person who somehow has this fear that they do not have a sort of source of, of being that they've lost the the sort of tethering to identity and and so again for fours these poor folks get caricatured as artistic and you know like a little a little dramatic or overly sensitive and, and sometimes flamboyant but what they're doing is they're seeing significance everywhere outside of themselves so that they can try to see what's significant about them and the return for the four is is really this this holy idea right this unobstruct unobstructed view of reality it's the first truth that they have to tell themselves. That uh, their origin was always purposed, and and that's the source of of their identity. It is rooted in love. Five is is sometimes called the observer or the investigator. In Spanish, they call the five the theorist. This is um, the need to understand, and, and these are the folks that that really sort of are cerebrally evacuated, and 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 they they sometimes look a, a little disconnected or withdrawn socially. But man, if a five chooses you, you you will not know such lavish care and, and generosity. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the the driver here is really to uncover the essence of everything and and this is the social gift that they offer, which is I I want to bring stability and security into the relationships and into the communities that I'm a part of, but I'll do that by not only finding the solution, but starting by understanding and asking the right mm-hmm. questions. And Dallas Willard
0: was a five, my, mm-hmm. my mentor. He was he could go deep and stay down in the depths and and you know unearth great stuff for us to enjoy. But he was definitely, as you're describing that, and when Dallas was, when he focused on you, he
1: was, mm-hmm. he was definitely a, you know, a, a great caregiver. Yeah, fours and fives sit at the bottom of the circle, and there's this little gap that's sometimes called the existential hole between them. And that's because fours are, 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 are part of the heart center and fives are part of the head center. And you know that connecting our head and our heart is one of the most difficult sort of journeys in human experience. I, I have this sense that they also sit down there at the bottom of the hole or the bottom of the circle holding up all the other types. And so there's a kind of almost exhaustion and fatigue mm. that they carry for us. Um the materials generally aren't super compassionate for fours and fives and and, and so they're they, they they sometimes feel a little bit beat up by this. They're they're a little quirky. And fives in particular can sometimes seem like a little pokey and, and, and slow, but really this is what's one of the great stressors for the five is is having to make a decision because, you know, if you're a five and, and you're tasked to figure something out about the the existential divine or love or even simply like what's the best computer on the market today, a five needs all the time to learn every possible thing there is about this before they'll bring it out. Mm. But, man, when they bring it out, they're almost always right. Oh. And, it's a bummer if your partners a 5 they're almost always right if they, if they bring something forward.
0: Well, a good friend Matt Johnson, he does a lot of work with us with the Apprentice Institute and he's a 5 and and I've done a lot of work with Matt. I I'd learned don't make him be on the spot like give him some time. And I you know we're we're wrestling with some question and then he comes back a day or two later and it's gold. It's yeah. just the
1: best. You
0: know, yeah.
1: it's funny. I sort of say you got to knock on the door. Like you got to shoot them a text and say, hey, can we talk next Tuesday at four o'clock about this? And maybe they'll they'll make room, but never just sort of calm on the on the, on the moment. Yeah. Like, it's pretty funny. <laughs> so six is six is um sometimes called the skeptic or or, or the loyalist. This is the 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 need to be um, secure. and And this folk. These folks sadly sort of get um pinned against the wall is is like the caricature of the fear type. But but sixes really are our, our source of faith and, and courage and, 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 and much like the three true true hope. The the cowardice, which is some of the other unfortunate language that's ascribed to the character structure of type six, isn't that sixes are, are scaredy cats. It's that they double down on the things that they've allowed to creep into their mind, they, they double down on the concerns that they have as a way of, of threat forecasting. And so they're great contingency planners. Um, they're worst case scenario thinkers. And it's not because they're pessimistic or, or negative. It's because they care and they don't want the rest of us to have to sort of go down these, these terrible, dreadful, angst-filled rabbit holes uh, of terror or, or, or peril or harm. So they do that mentally for the rest of us and, and, and they get out ahead of us. And so we really have to also try to understand that there, there there has to be a sense of compassion in bringing this forward to, to sixes. Is you don't have to go there for us. Like, it actually will be okay. And if you could actually turn that corner and root yourself in the gift of your faith, that's where you're going to try and find the, 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 the strength of your courage. And, and courage isn't not being afraid. It's just actually dismantling the illusions of fear. And that's what we see in sixes. Mm, mm-hmm. um, seven are... The enthusiast, this is the need to avoid pain. These folks are ridiculous and playful and imaginative and and curious. And in some of the physical takes of type, they they say that the the bottom of the feet of seven wrinkle the least. Um, It's sort of a symbol of them sort of walking on air. Um, These folks are, are really afraid of being trapped in their own pain. And so in a sense, all the activity that they externalize is sort of them running from that pain. And what the seven ends up doing is overdoing everything that brings in pleasure as a, as a way of staying asleep to it. Because um, the seven runs from pain, while simultaneously maybe being one of the fastest thinkers and and one of the best problem solvers of the Enneagram, they make incredible humanitarians and incredible activists. They can, can give themselves to other people's pain without sort of emotionally being drawn into it, and then they can offer solutions. Mm. Um... The real work though for the seven though is practicing presence and, and realizing that it's in their own pain that they'll hear the truth about their own belovedness. Mm. Um, eights, I'm an eight. This is the, the challenger, um, the contrarian, the provocateur, this is the need to be against. Um, we are the, even though we hate bullies, the, the biggest bullies, um, and, and sometimes can come across the, a little bit too much. There's a lot of drive. There's a lot of intensity here. Um, there, there's a lot of testing and, and this testing looks like hassling and sassing people and provoking and, and fighting them. And, and this is partly because, like I was saying earlier, the, the, the childhood experience of, of a lot of AIDS is, is part of my childhood is lost, was accelerated. I had to become tougher or, or more mature or more adult than, than I was ready for. And, and the truth is, is that was a self-betrayal, right? There was a betrayal of our own innocence in that and so what eights are sort of looking at in their own adult lives and sets of friendships and relationships is, is how somebody is going to betray them now. And so all this fighting is just testing you. Can I trust you? And if I fight, if I push, if I'm a little inappropriate, will you dismiss me? Which the eight will misread as betrayal. And if they can do that efficiently, then they will. So let's just get it out of the way now rather than six months, six years later. Hmm. Um, But you see eights when they return to their tenderness and their vulnerabilities really sort of open up and and something beautiful comes out of them.
0: Now, I have to just stop you here for a second. You don't present as an eight. (laughs) You present as a a kind and gentle soul. And I'm not not saying because, you know, people don't often – Their
1: type doesn't come out real quick. but Yeah. Well, so it's funny because usually when we do eights in workshops or or different conversations, somebody will say, oh, yeah, I used to work with a really unhealthy eight. And I'm always just like, no, they were just an eight. You just weren't standing up for yourself. Um, I will say this. My former community, there was a lot of heart forward folks there. And and I do think um, in (laughs) – And just sort of stomping around in the mud puddles of community, like hurting people and and maybe not sort of recognizing the eightness about myself. I I did have to do a lot of inner work and self-correcting that. You're a very integrated eight. (laughs) Uh, I don't know. But I will also say this, and this is sort of like like way, way, way down the line in terms of Enneagram studies. But when you take the instinctual variants or the subtypes in, um, there's – three renderings of type based on a self-preservation instinct, based on a, a sexual or one-to-one instinct, and based on a social instinct. And I'm a social eight. The social eight, this is super nerdy, is the counter type eight. So it's the eight that doesn't look like an eight. So okay. Sometimes a seven, sometimes a nine, sometimes a two. Um, so the counter types throw everybody.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, that now you're going deep. Okay. So we've got one more. <laughs> and our sound engineer who's listening to this as we're
1: talking is a nine. Oh. So <laughs> Man, I love nines. So I love nines. Nines sit at the top of the circle. And, and some of the theories there basically tell us that that the nines sit way up there at the top because they are a source of love and, and, and love in action. and action. And that all the rest of the types basically fall off to the right and the left of the nine. is as, hmm. as sort of really bright at one and eight and, and really sort of withdrawn at five and, and four. But that we're basically just diminished aspects of, of love and so when a nine returns to his or her true self, there, there's not a, a stronger force of love in the world. Now, the nine is sometimes called the mediator or the peacemaker um, because there's this ability to arbitrate outside of themselves and harmonize outside of themselves everything that they want to see aligned in the world. Um, the problem is, 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 is this nine has a need to avoid and in the early holding environments of the nine, um, Knowing on an intuitive level, let's say maybe a subconscious level, that they were born to be a source of love, they looked at everything around them and determined everyone's needs were more important than their own. So what they did was 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 they wrote, let's say symbolically, they wrote down what was important to them on a, on a piece of paper, tore it out of the notepad, crumbled it up, and put it in their back pocket so that it was always with them so that they wouldn't forget it. But then they let's say pass that notepad around to their family and said, what's important to you and what's important to you and what's important to you because that's what I'm going to make most important to me. And then doing that began to forget themselves. Mm. And and so poor nines get dragged a little bit as, 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 as being the sloth type or, or being lazy. And there's nothing lazy about the nine. In fact, there's a lot of energy that a nine sort of has to put out there to continue to minimize themselves while making everybody else more important or centralizing everybody else's concerns. And what this does for the poor nine is is it really sort of becomes a kind of fatigue that they carry in their body. And so this is why we look at them as a little lethargic. But there's no lethargy in there. In their heart, there's a lot of – there's a suffering that that they carry for the rest of us. And in their head, they have to turn all of this off because in their head, if they actually woke up to themselves – um, they would have to bring themselves and their needs forward, and and on a subconscious level, there's something about that that seems to be a little bit too egocentric or selfish. So in their head, there's a kind of mental numbness that that keeps them asleep to self. Um, but man, when a nine really returns to to centering themselves, like I said, you 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 you've never seen a more activated person mm-hmm. out there.
0: Yeah, that's true. Well that was a great you know sketch of the of the the types and I just want to say to those who are listening that Chris is going to be doing a, an intensive workshop at the Apprentice Gathering September 26th to the 28th that 26th you'll have a you could spend a whole day with Chris uh, digging deep into this stuff so I encourage you to go online apprenticeinstitute.org and sign up for that I'm, I'm I'm dying to to listen to more of what
1: you have to say about this stuff Chris thanks for being on this this episode. and I want to have you back. Yeah, appreciate. really appreciate it. really appreciate your work and what you've done to sort of help in our own sort of evolution of, of, of contemplative and spiritual consciousness. It's, it's a huge gift. Oh, you're very kind. That's awesome. Our guest again, Chris Hewart's, who has written this great book, The Sacred
0: Enneagram. Check it out. It's the best there is on this subject. I hope you enjoyed this Things Above conversation. I know I did. Chris is a fascinating person and there's so much to learn from him. Uh, I want to spend more time with him and uh, dig deeper into his, his his book and get to know him. He's just a fascinating person, and uh, it was great to spend some time with him. Thank you, Chris, for being with us. I hope you join me next week for episode 36. Until then, you can find me on Twitter and Facebook at James Ryan Smith, and you can learn more about this podcast at ApprenticeInstitute.org. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend, and you can also subscribe, which means you're going to get them automatically each week. My hope, as always, is that if one day you're asked, hey, what's on your mind, your answer will be things above.